0: When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the Higher Standard. Your standard. Learn more at Edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD, from the Cleveland Clinic.
1: Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the year-end finale of Parallax. And, you know, like we have done over the past couple of years, this is year three of Parallax, so season three. We've uh, traditionally ended the season with uh, Dr. Nidger, you know, who's a a friend of mine, a, a colleague, interventional cardiologist, and senior clinical lecturer at Imperial College of London in the United Kingdom. And, um, you know, we we like this tradition. We like to maintain this tradition at Parallax because, uh, you know, I I, I think of it as twofold. You know, one, uh, I think it's always good um, to not change the mantra if it's successful. And, you know, Sook's episodes have historically been the maximum downloaded episodes. Um, So he, he does a terrific job in uh summarizing the year for us and and two you know parallax and Ratcliffe are in the uk Suk is in uk so i think it's it's sort of a good year-end episode to sort of be home in the christmas spirit in the holiday spirit and you know celebrate celebrate being home so with that introduction Suk, welcome and thank you for doing this for us again this year
0: Uh, thank you anka thank you so much for uh, inviting me back again and with that introduction i i feel um uh, almost embarrassed and humbled to uh, to be speaking to you again.
1: Oh, no, I mean, you know, the the, you've, uh, the listenership and the audience have always welcomed, uh, you know, your input and, and take on um, the field and take on the trials that we're going to talk about. And, you know, the episodes uh, where, you know, we've brought you on board and we've discussed this together have done really well. So, you know, congratulations to you. So we're going to get started because, you know, we have a lot to, discuss and talk about. Um, and, you know, Suk has uh, a great lineup for us in terms of, um, you know, antiplatelet studies. And then from antiplatelet studies, uh, he'll delve into some of the physiology studies on coronary physiology. And then we finish with heart failure and some of the surgical studies, you know, from our surgical colleagues. So Sook, Um you know, thanks again for doing this. And we're going to dive right in. Why don't we start off with some of the antiplatelet studies that you've picked for us from 2021.
0: Yeah, sure, sure thing, Anka. Thank you for that, and I think it's a great opportunity to just to discuss some of the big antiplatelet studies that have come through. The uh, world of antiplatelets has always been very confusing because there are a wealth of studies. They sometimes have conflicting results, and we don't always quite understand uh, where we are with it, and it means that many people default back to very standard behaviours with the use of aspirin and um, clopidogrel. And then in acute coronary syndromes, we tend to go with the more potent PY2 um, receptor antagonists um, like uh, uh, ticagrelor or Prazogrel. And, and this year, we've had a couple of studies that help clarify our understanding. Um, and they can be divided into those that are looking at chronic um, co- coronary disease. So those patients who've got Mostly stable disease that have had PCI, and we're trying to understand what antiplate that these patients should be uh, given long term. And then there are those patients who are kind of more all comers angioplasty, uh, and then also the kind of more unique cohort of patients that we're all troubled with. And you and I will both have these patients on our books who are high bleeding risk patients. And so, I, what I thought we'd start off with is just looking at the kind of more standard chronic um, coronary disease stable coronary disease or patients that have had PCI at some interval and that was assessed in a uh, Korean study called the host exam study that was um, published at the uh, beginning of the year and was presented uh, in one of the major conferences at the beginning of the year and it was interesting because it really builds on a signal of information that's been around for quite some time. So uh, the basic premise of the study was to look at those patients that had had angioplasty, that had had um, aspirin and clopidogrel for between six months and a year, depending on the indication. So uh, one year for ACS and six months for stable disease. And then um, what they did was they then uh, randomized those patients to just continuing on aspirin alone or just getting clopidogrel alone. So uh, in a way, it's an adaptation of this concept of prolonged APT but rather than having aspirin in there, it's just clopidogrel. And so you could think that the clopidogrel is a more potent drug. This may well have, uh, be advantageous. And they took around 5,500 patients, and they enrolled and randomized these patients with a very, very good rate of follow-up. And um, as you all know, there's, there's been some excellent editorials on some of the weaknesses of the antiplatelet studies has been that loss to follow-up is actually quite high in many of these studies. And that can significantly impact on our interpretation. Because in a few studies, the loss to follow-up can actually exceed the number of events that are even occurring in these studies. And what they did was they looked at patient oriented outcomes. So they looked at a combination of all-cause deaths, non-fatal MI, stroke, and then readmission due to acute coronary syndrome, but also a bleeding endpoint, which is combined into that with major bleeding, defined as BARC3 and above. And what they found, surprisingly, is if you take this relatively stable cohort of patients, that by definition have shown that they've not had major events or bleeding out to one year, had one of these problems occur in 7.7% on aspirin or 5.7% on clopidogrel, meaning that you had an absolute risk difference of around 2%. The hazard ratio was around 0.73, which means that you've got a 30% reduction in of these major events just by getting rid of the aspirin. Um, what's interesting is if you... Uh, do a deep dive and look down at thrombotic events as well as bleeding events they're all lower in the clopidogrel arm and there's a lower level of stroke and all the subgroups are very consistent so this is an interesting study because remember in in the far east uh, and in in um, uh, the far eastern population there are some genetic phenotypes there's a cyp uh, 2C19 um, uh, variations, and there's a loss of function allele in the Far East, which means that theoretically in the Far East, clopidogrel may be less effective than it is in Western populations because the, the second and the, uh, the two-component cleavage that happens in the liver doesn't happen, and therefore this prodrug doesn't become active in those patients. And yet this study showed that in this uh, essentially all-comers cohort of patients, they actually had a very good outcome. And so this kind of tells us that in stable patients that haven't had bleeding events and they've had some interval from PCI, that if you want to drop an antiplatelet, then the antiplatelet to drop would be aspirin. And that fits in together with a lot of the information that's come out of studies like Twilight that came out last year that suggested that aspirin perhaps adds less than we thought in the past. And so those chronic patients can probably be managed on clopidogrel long term. And what's interesting about this study is that it essentially alludes back to um, a study from 1990s called Capri, which is really quite old now, uh, that has shown some benefit in patients with atherosclerosis um, who were given uh, clopidogrel instead of aspirin. And th- there was a signal of benefit there. So I think that can help what we do in the management of these chronic patients. So particularly if maybe you've done um, uh, intervention in a proximal vessel, or you've done bifurcation intervention, you may think, well, actually, I want to continue this patient on um, a stronger antiplatelet to reduce their long term events. And therefore, clopidogrel may well be uh, a safe use rather than um, dropping it as we do typically here. Um, Certainly here in the UK, it's almost uh, programmed into all primary care um, services, um, primary care physicians will automatically stop the clopidogrel very, very quickly as soon as you hit that one-year mark after the intervention, and so it will will require a little bit of kind of education, retraining, and perhaps making it very clear to the patient that that you know for you, I'd like you to continue the clopidogrel. Obviously in this particular study all the patients have been seen and reassessed so that's something that you know we'll have to work into our programs to be able to do that which is something that's not done very much in the uk but i know in the us that's that's relatively straightforward is this something that you do anchor do you tend to continue copierable or do you tend to go long term dapt on, on, on a lot of patients
1: so you know i a great question and something i wanted you to summarize uh, after we we're done finishing talking about all the anti studies but you know my practice is that for me, I think about it in 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 the spectrum of acute coronary syndrome and then in the spectrum of stable coronary disease. So if it's in the spectrum of acute coronary syndrome, I, I would definitely do at least three months debt. Now, you know, we can talk about whether it's ticagrelor or clopidogrel. I prefer ticagrelor because of uh, reduction in thrombotic events. And then after three months, I actually you know, depending on the bleeding profile of the patient could do ticagrelor monotherapy, we have data on that. And then post one year, uh, you know, the question is whether I should put them back to aspirin monotherapy or clopidogrel monotherapy. And, you know, after what we've seen published this year, and, you know, apropos the discussion we just had, I'm leaning toward clopidogrel monotherapy as, um, you know, a chronic therapy in patients with chronic coronary syndromes. You know, that's, been a shift in my own practice um I don't know if you would agree or concur with with that shift, but you know I sort of think about these patients, particularly the a c s patients I think about them in the spectrum of okay, is it post one to three month p c i post three to twelve month p c i and then post twelve month p c i and you know these are the three time point intervals that I think about them. And depending on their bleeding profile, you know, first three months, it's aspirin and a P2Y12, then three to 12 months, it's a P2Y12 monotherapy for me at least. And then post 12 months, you know, I think I'm probably leaning toward P2Y12 monotherapy. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I I agree with you completely. I think, again, you have to look at the patient. You have to look at that bleeding risk. You have to look at the clinical situation. Is this a stable? Is this an acute coronary syndrome? Is there a, been a big troponin rise? What's the what's the coronary anatomy look like and what's the risk of future events? And then you have to balance it. So it's a lot of juggling that you have to do. And it, it, and I think we've evolved to a stage where we are really trying to give targeted um, therapy, which is individualized to the patient. And I know that people in the past have done a lot of uh, platelet testing, uh, platelet function testing. People have done uh, genotype testing. Funnily enough, Genotype testing seems to be a little bit more effective in the studies than um, platelet function. And and as far as I'm aware, none of the platelet function testing studies have ever come to fruition, whereas the genotype testing and escalation of antiplatelets based on genotype appears to be a little bit better. But we don't really have ready access to that. So I would follow very much what you do in the majority of my patients. And certainly now I'm uh, frequently recommending when the patients have gone through their highest risk period, and they're getting to the end of um, when we're stopping the potent uh, uh, agents like ticagrelor or Prasagrel, then I would typically de-escalate down to Clopidogrel. And I think there is value to that. Certainly from a cost uh, cost basis, um, obviously Clopidogrel is an off-patent uh, medication that's now very cheap, very easily available. Um, certainly before it was always very expensive and um, people were very keen to stop it. But, you know, that's that's no longer an issue.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. OK, so moving on, um, what is the next study you want to talk about in this space?
0: Yeah, so I thought this next study was very interesting because the next study is StopDat2ACS, which is, again, a study performed in the Far East. And uh, it was uh, presented this year at the European Society of Cardiology in 2021. And it was a follow on study from uh, the StopDat2 study that was presented at ACC 2019. And what StopTap2 had shown was that actually going with a short duration dual antiplatelet therapy versus a full 12 month in an all comers cohort seemed to be superior uh, than going with a a long period. So uh, minimizing the time that the patient is exposed to dual antiplatelet therapy appeared to be superior. Now, this was in an all comers cohort and it appeared to be superior for ischemic events. But it was also lumped together with the primary outcome was lumped together with bleeding events as well. So this kind of patient orientated outcome that is frequently used in these type of studies now, combination of death, MI, stent thrombosis, stroke and bleeding, appeared to be better by shortening the dual antiplatelet therapy. Now, what they wanted to do was do a much larger study focusing specifically on those patients with acute coronary syndrome, because we know that those patients are at highest risk and they took those patients with ACS. And um, what they wanted to do is give them uh, both drugs for one month and then um, give them clopidogrel alone and drop the aspirin. But what was interesting is in this cohort of patients, dropping the aspirin early did not appear to be safe. And it certainly wasn't non-inferior. It didn't meet the non-inferiority um, parameters, which were pre-specified. And so therefore, we can say that this uh, pathway of dropping aspirin early in acute coronary syndrome patients is probably not safe. Now, the total number of events, uh, again, in these studies, you know, this is an example of just how good um, patient management of acute coronary syndromes is now. The total number of events is really small. And we're talking about a primary outcome occurring as uh, 3.2% in the one month uh, dual antiplatelet therapy versus 2.8% in those patients having um, uh, 12 months of dual antiplatelet therapy. And you cannot start to think, was there enough power in the study? Did we have enough patient in the study? But what is striking here is in those patients that have had an acute coronary syndrome, I think what this tells us is that we really got to continue the aspirin for as long as we possibly can. Now, what you were talking about just recently was about the, uh, going with ticagrelor monotherapy, which perhaps is slightly different with clopidogrel monotherapy. And uh, and so, you know, you're we're, we're, we're going to pot- potentially get a little bit confused here. But what STOPDAPT 2 to ACS tells us is that clopidogrel on its own straight after an acute coronary syndrome probably isn't good enough. And therefore, you may err on the side of giving something more potent like Ticagalor, uh, which appeared to be safe in global leaders and in twilight. You have to be a little bit cautious, though, because remember, both in Global Leaders and in Twilight, there was a a different set of patients that have been recruited. These were not classical all comers. Twilight had a higher bleeding risk cohort of patients um, by the definition that the the, the authors Roxana Morian's group um, used. um, You know, and there can be an argument over how high bleeding risk they really were. Uh, And Global Leaders had its own very special uh, process of recruiting patients. So perhaps these um studies don't translate but what i took away from this was that we've got to be careful about stopping uh, aspirin too early what what do, so what does that make you think about uh, the process of stopping it uh, early in your, in your cohort of patients
1: yeah so i think you know in an acs setting you know like i said i or on the side of continuing aspirin for at least 3 months you know that's my that's my practice um I, I tend not to stop it early, you know, even in patients who, and, you know, I, I know we're, we're, we're talking antiplatelets here, but a lot of our patients also have concomitant atrial fibrillation, and are on anticoagulants. So even in patients with, you know, direct oral anticoagulants for stroke prevention in, in atrial fibrillation, my, my practice, at least in those patients also, at least for a month, is, you know, at least for a month, continue triple therapy. And, um, you know, then I stop aspirin. I'm comfortable with them being on dual antithrombotic therapies, is how I call it. Uh, so it's a combination of antiplatelet and an anticoagulant, um, you know, P2Y12 and, and um, you know, either apixaban or rivaroxaban. Uh, and then I continue that for uh, at least, uh, you know, P2Y12 for at least a year. And then the question is whether they should be completely off antiplatelets and only Beyond DOAX or anticoagulants, or we should add a a lower potent CP to Y twelve like clopidogrel for stable disease. But you know, in ACS patients, my I are on err on the side of continuing aspirin at least for three months, uh, and that's when I that's when I feel comfortable stopping it.
0: Yeah, I I think that's uh a, a, probably a good strategy. Uh, my the way I would do it in in those patients, excluding those patients with. Um, concomitant concomitant atrial fibrillation I generally keep them on the aspirin for I probably go for the full uh, 12 months but that's because this is UK practice is very much guided by what our general practitioners our primary care physicians are used to and um, making those tweaks can be difficult and funnily enough as I'm sure you probably find you know, there are patients where we've told them they can stop the aspirin and then you may catch up with them at some later date. And they're still taking it because a pharmacist somewhere uh, or a um, primary care physician or a, a nurse, someone somewhere say, oh, you must continue aspirin. And so they've ended up never stopping it. So, um, it you know, even in the best uh, well played um, planned intentions, sometimes doesn't always come to fruition. I agree with you in terms of those patients with atrial fibrillation for sure. Uh, I think minimizing triple therapy is very important and dual pathway approaches with a combination of a, a DOAC together with an antiplatelet is is the right way to go. I generally err on the side of caution and give clopidogrel in those patients rather than uh, ticagrel or prasugrel because the total number of patients in the big studies that looked at those actually were very few of those patients were on the more potent uh, antiplatelets. You
1: yeah, know, excellent, excellent comments um and i i because i you know i do think that both ticagrelor well both the as well as apixaban i believe even rivaroxaban have been studied with ticagrelor they have been
0: yeah th- th- they have been the ticagrelor has featured in all of those uh studies but the the actual numbers is relatively modest if you look at pioneer i think there were very few numbers Um, And I I believe in the uh, more recent Apixaban study, I believe it was around 10 percent or 12 percent, if I'm correct. Um, Forgive me if I've made an error there. But the uh, I think the the total number of patients is relatively modest. And of course, if you've got a robust uh, patient without a bleeding risk, I think then you're then you're very safe. Uh, Obviously, in a smaller patient, for example, you've got a low body weight, um, perhaps an elderly lady, who um, has low body weight, I, I think I would be a little bit cautious in the use of a potent uh, PY2 receptor and 12, if I, can, if I can say it, um, antagonist.
1: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree um, with all those excellent comments that you just made. All right, so moving on uh, to, to an area of your expertise. I mean, you have a New England Journal of Paper in this area, so <laughs> talking about coronary physiology. Um, you want to start off with flower MI and then
0: forward. So let's talk about physiology. I mean, everyone will always expect me to talk about physiology. uh, And this is uh, certainly something that I've spent a lot of my time working on and thinking about. And, uh, you know, if we take a a global view and look at it from a bird's eye, then 2021 was not a great year for physiology and physiological studies because there were lots of negative studies. And I can understand how many of the uh, listeners will think, okay, well, actually, the overall outcomes have not been great. Um, for fractional flow reserves. And so, you know, has has the era of physiology come to an end? And there's a whole bunch of studies. And the first was FLOWER, um, which was uh, presented towards the beginning of the year at, um, I believe, ACC. And um, what essentially that did was it tried to answer that tricky question of patients who've had an ST elevation myocardial infarction. As as, um, many of us will know, many patients uh, around 30 to 40% of STEMI patients will have multivessel disease. And yes, we will treat the culprit because clearly that needs to be revascularized and needs to be opened. But what do you do with uh, the non-culprit vessels? And there's been a variety of studies over the years. There's, there was the PRAMI study and the culprit study around five or six years ago that showed that actually multi-vessel PCI appeared to be better, but there could be arguments about the validity of those studies they were relatively unique patient cohorts. Uh, there were UK-centric um, uh, ways of working in those uh, patients. Uh, th- all those patients were UK and the centers were all UK. Um, so there are some limitations with that, but then it was followed by a much more comprehensive study, the COMPLETE study, which was predominantly North American, and that had showed a fairly clear picture that complete revascularization with intervention to all lesions that uh, were considered significant angiographically proved to be better but again most of the events were driven by uh, reduced revascularization and so there is still always a little bit of doubt now along parallel to that has been this question of can physiology help guide that there were some studies again a few years ago that looked at that there's dynamic three primalty and there was compare acute that used fractional flow reserve either at the time of the STEMI or as an inpatient, after the patient has had their, their STEMI, they've had it revascularized and a couple of days later they'd have FFR. But what those studies did was um, they compared it to no revascularization at all. Okay, so that means um, the, if you were randomized to the FFR arm, you got multivessel PCI often. Uh, but if you were in the other arm, you got nothing. And unsurprisingly, there was a big separation in the curves, and the couple of mice separate quite dramatically. Um, but they were limited because they weren't blinded there. Uh, naturally, if you've revascularized everything, then you interventions tend not to bring patients back unnecessarily to uh, perform further PCI. And so much of the events were driven by uh, non-urgent revascularization. So that comes to the current study, and that's FLOWER. And what FLOWER did was try to answer this question by saying, look, why don't we measure fractional flow reserve in all the vessels uh, in patients with um, multivessel disease undergoing a STEMI at the time of the original PCI. And what they did was they randomized around 1,200 patients. So it's 1,171 in total. And that worked out as around 600 patients in each arm. So what they looked at was death, MI or urgent revasc, And what they found in this particular cohort in flower MI was there was no difference at all. And um, the, so the value was uh, 5.5 versus 4.2 percent in, in, in either arm when the p-value was non-significant at 0.31. And there were no significant values in non-fatal MI and there no significant differences in urgent revask as well. And so that kind of led to this feeling that perhaps using fractional flow reserve in this cohort of patients uh, perhaps wasn't very good. And if you then actually do a deep dive, you can start to see that the hazard ratio actually looked unfavorable for fractional flow reserve with a hazard ratio of 1.32, implying harm in those patients that have had an FFR measured, which led to people saying, look, in this cohort of patients, FFR is missing things. But there are some limitations to the study. And whilst it it does add uh, to the literature, it does help us gain more understanding. There are some limitations. The total event rate uh, in this relatively small study is very small. There are literally only 32 events in the FFR group, 24 events in the angiogram group. And so we're talking about a difference of eight patients driving all of the events in this particular study. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't necessarily base uh, the management of uh, all my patients going forward on eight patients. And so there is a limitation there. We also know that the the study was um, stopped relatively early, which caused uh, some loss of power. And um, I think there is also some, Recognition now that we've got to be a bit careful with fractional flow reserve in the STEMI cohort, because when we give medicines like adenosine in order to induce hyperemia, there is, um, there, there is a blunting of the hyperemic response. So in patients who've had an MI, an acute MI will have essentially maximal vasodilatation of their microcirculation at rest, and they will be in a, in a very disordered state in that moment their microcirculation is often uh, affected by thrombus and distal embolization. And uh, there is also um, histopatholo- histopatholo- if I can speak today, histopathological studies that show that there is uh, blebbing and um, uh, microblebbing of the microcirculation, which also leads to problems. And so that may mean you underestimate the fractional flow reserve in a value. So by that, I mean, you may measure a negative FFR value, one above 0.80, and therefore you may... Uh, Inappropriately defer a lesion that would have otherwise been centred, and then there is also the fundamental issue about fractional flow reserve in acute coronary syndromes, because I think there is increasing recognition that fractional flow reserve's original validation, its original work to to bring it to its to its um, to its utility, the way we use it now, was in stable cohort of patients, and patients with acute coronary syndrome tend to have angry plaque. They tend to have multi rupture, multiple uh, plaque rupture in multiple different vessels. And this has been shown by histopatholo- histopathological studies. And um, I think. In this particular setting, the feeling is that if we pacify the plaque, then we will reduce events. Now, I would push back a little bit on that because I think that still remains to be proven. I think there is some interesting unique data, and I know Greg Stone is pushing very hard in this in this field. Um, and now, and there is a push for looking for vulnerable plaque, however you define it, whichever te- imaging technology you use to look at it. But, um, and I think that's still to be proven, but I would just express a little bit of caution in the use of fractional flow reserve, particularly when it's negative or borderline negative in the STEMI cohort, but I wouldn't necessarily stop doing fractional flow reserve on the back of FLARMI MI. And, Uh, Also, it's probably just worth pointing out that although kind of people looked at this as this was, you know, a negative study, this is actually in keeping with a lot of the previous FFR studies performed in acute coronary syndromes. And there's a wealth of observational studies and cohort papers that have come out of the US principally looking at FFR measured in acute coronary syndromes, and the signal has always been the same. That is, the event rate has always been higher in ACS patients, and deferred lesions uh, on the back of FFR have always had a higher event rate. So have caution when using this technology in that cohort of patients. Is this something that you do, um, Anker? Is this is this something that you ever measure, or is it something that you would typically rest a patient on the ward and bring them back for revasc on the back of complete? Or what, what, what's your practice in your centre? Um,
1: so the latter, you know, I I agree with you. I tend not to do fractional flow reserve or instantaneous wave free ratio assessments in patients who are being admitted or presented to the cath lab with an acute coronary syndrome. You know, like you said. This technology of coronary physiology assessment was, I think, meant, well, I mean, it's, it's been validated, you know, don't get me wrong, it's been validated in patients with acute coronary syndrome, but I think it was traditionally meant to assess, you know, stable disease and, uh, you know, the physiological significance of stable lesions. And because of vasospasm, uh, you know, cytokine storm an inflammatory milieu, what have you, unstable, angry plaques everywhere in the setting of an acute coronary syndrome you know i'm I'm not sure if I would hang my hat a lot on um, either a negative or a positive uh, you know physiological assessment of a lesion which appears indeterminate to the to the eye
0: yeah and do you, do we image in this cohort so say for example you've done uh, a proximal LED the patient had a relatively short occlusion time the patient's quite well there's a tight circumflex would you um, guide would you automatically revascularize that patient in the same setting? Would you use imaging to guide your decision making? How would you guide it? Because the challenge often is in the STEMI cohort of patients, is that many of these patients have had no symptoms and no angina until the day of the event. And many of these lesions have been present. And so you just wonder, what are we actually doing in that moment? Is this lesion a true um, vulnerable plaque? Is it a true unstable plaque? Or is it uh, just a bystander lesion that we're now placing an additional piece of metal. It's a little bit difficult to know, isn't it? So I just wonder what you would, t- you tend to do in this setting.
1: Yeah. And no, I couldn't agree with you more. I actually, uh, you know, not too long ago did send a tweet um, specifically asking that question to the community. And that is, uh, you know, under what circumstance does an ACS patient with a non culprit lesion become, uh, you know, a courage patient, Uh you know, just um, to to put your question into perspective, and I, it's it's a concept I still battle with. You know, as a practicing clinician, I so I, I'll tell you what I do in my practice. In my practice, I you know, if the culprit lesion door to balloon time was short, and you know, I, I have the guide up, and it's it's just a matter of putting a wire down the other vessel and fixing it. That's what I do. You know, for patient convenience. Um, if it's, if, if it, if it's a longish procedure and, you know, I have to switch guides and, you know, I have to, um, tackle another vessel or if the lesion appears a little tricky, I tend to stage these lesions, but I don't typically either image. I mean, if they look, um, angiographically severe or significant, I tend not to image them. I tend not to even do physiological assessment. I just stage these lesions. Um, and, you know, that's, that's what I do now. Um, do I have the literature and data to support this practice? I do. Um, am I convinced if this is, the, this is the most evidence-based practice of coronary vascularization? Uh, you know, I'm not certain. Um, there's there's equipoise in my mind. I don't know how else to put it.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with you, Ankara. I think, you know, there's, there's a very fine point, and I think we get ourselves into a little bit of a mess, when we say that we are performing everything with an evidence base, because the reality is most of the patients that we come across uh, wouldn't not be randomized in a particular study because they may have an exclusion, they may have some complexity the, 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 the fact that when we're recruiting for apparently simple ra- randomized control studies that we end up screening and going through so many patients uh, and to recruit one just puts into my mind that actually. A lot of the evidence that we hang our hats on or say, so oh, we're doing it because of this study and this is the study that will guide all of our practice, actually kind of makes it a little bit of a mockery or it. And part of being a doctor, part of being a physician, part of being an interventionist is um, trying to meld that information that comes in trials, trying to meld that with clinical guidance and of which guidance, guidelines and guidance are uh, living documents that will evolve over time, and they have their own biases, and they can be controversial, just like the the new uh, update on revascularization. I can see on Twitter there's a lot of controversy from our surgical friends uh, who who feel hard done by and then there's also marrying up what the expectations of the patient are because of course they're the most important person in this conversation and what they would like us to do, plus also the limitations of the health system that we work in. And the constraints and the way that things work in your particular department um, and you know whether we accept this or not. What would our colleagues say about the way we've tackled a particular issue? What would our non-interventional colleagues say? And certainly um, we tend to have a very conservative view in the UK. I, I wouldn't there. Are, I know there are many uh, bloggers and and podcasters that like to say that they're conservative cardiologists. And I, I know this has become a bit of a brand. Personally, I think that actually in the UK, we are almost always relatively conservative compared to uh, what we see in other countries, certainly compared to Maine and Europe and compared to, you know, we do a lot of high risk stuff, no doubt. We do a lot of complex uh, lesions, no doubt. But the way the timelines work in the UK is that we're relatively conservative already um, because it takes time for patients to come through. They t- t- takes time for testing. And so actually, All of that is being weighed in your mind while you're trying to make this decision at four in the morning about whether you should tackle that circumflex. And so I don't want to criticize anyone who decides, you know what, I'm going to stage this. I'm going to bring this patient back or, you know what, I'm going to see the patient in clinic, in the office, if they're still having any symptoms. And if there are symptoms, then maybe we'll do it. And if there's not, you know, and I think there isn't a hard and fast rule for any of these things. You've got to use your gut instinct. And that gut instinct comes over many years and over many, um, and it gets honed with time. And I always um, say this to a lot of my colleagues um, because I, I've been at Imperial for a very long time. I was a trainee there and now uh, in uh, an attending there. And so uh, what we do now, I would say none of my the people who trained me were doing on a routine basis um, just a few years ago. So uh, the way that practice has evolved is so dramatically different. And I imagine what I'll be doing in five and 10 years will be very different still. And I imagine what the trainees that are coming through now are looking at and worrying about and trying to get into their heads will also be very different as well. And the way that we practice will, will evolve. And so there's almost no point in fighting it. And we just have to kind of roll with it and just say, look, our practice is going to change. We're never going to be perfectly right. We're going to try and bring the data that we have and understanding that we have and apply it to the patient in front of us. And that's, Really the challenging aspect of medicine that's kind of what makes it exciting right that's trying to, that balancing game i don't know I mean this is a philosophical dis- debate rather than the data debate i don't know what your thoughts are on that
1: no I, I agree with you you know I think um, at the end of the day we we are treating the patient um, and you know we're, we're treating the person behind the patient and you know, there are, there are many factors, just like you said, you know, is, is this person going to be adherent, compliant and show up in the next office visit? Um, you know, is it safe to just stent this now versus stage this? Is he, uh, is he or she adherent or compliant with dual antiplatelet therapy? You know, do I need to put more metal until I am convinced that this patient is going to take dual antiplatelet therapy as prescribed? Um, you know, what is the financial situation? What is the social situation of this particular patient? Yes. So, you know, many, many scenarios, many scenarios um, which, you know, interface with, with evidence and data play into decision-making. And it's just not, not all about, you know, randomized clinical trials and evidence and data. I mean, there's, we're dealing with patients and patients have, you know, there are barriers and, you know, that as, as, as swiftly as you and I want to solve them, you know, there are system issues in, into procuring medicines, access to, you know, healthcare and access to affordable medications, you know, particularly in the U S is, is a vexing problem. And
0: yeah, I mean, this is, this is the, the ironic thing that, you know, we can uh, butt heads and you'll see these interesting discussions of people arguing over a one or 2% difference or, you know, a, a, a troponin difference uh post surgery or troponin difference post pci uh and the reality is we you know you're worried about a little bit of apposition here on oct or a little bit of expansion here but the reality is the patient uh doesn't take their clopidol because they uh, can't afford the copay um in the us and so they're they're non-adherent as you would say and they they can't take the drug and therefore they have all the bad complications of that kind of system issue. And that's, you know, that's a much harder thing for, for people to tackle. Certainly here in the UK, we have a socialized healthcare system, which has some downsides, no doubt. Uh, it does have a huge benefit. I, I almost never have to consider, you know, is the patient gonna be able to afford to take these medications as part of my decision-making? But that doesn't necessarily mean that all the, you know, all of those thoughts go out of our head, because, of course, there are other constraints within our services. So, you know, I, yeah, I think every place uh, has to da- tackle all of those particular issues. And I know, you know, you, you've had some experience of working in India. And um, when I hear I've some of the stories from my colleagues who work there and they, um, you know, really troublesome stories of patients who, uh, cannot afford to have the treatment that they really really need and so having to choose uh, lower quality treatments or no treatment at all and that when you hear these stories they it just makes you it just makes you despair really about how we've allowed this kind of system to to exist around the world this inequality
1: yeah you know i, I couldn't agree with you more you know it, it's 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 more of a problem in i mean i think i mean i've seen it in the u.s i've seen it in india um and you know I, You know, people uh, have um, opinions of NHS, but, you know, NHS has been shown to work and has, um, you know, equitable disposition of care, as you just mentioned. Um, So, you know, whether that system can can work in the U.S. or in India, you know, only time will tell.
0: Um,
1: But moving forward with with some of the other studies in, in physiology,
0: yeah, let me mention, so we our, our, our philosophical uh, tangent there. So um, let, me let me mention RIPCORD 2. And I think RIPCORD 2 is an interesting study, not least because it was done uh, by our president of the British uh, Society of uh, Intervention, uh, Professor Nick Curzon, uh, but also because it um, is interesting for us, particularly at Imperial, where we are one of the highest. Uh, users of uh, pressure wires in the country, we keep being told by the various companies that our, our usage is uh, much higher than everywhere else. And what Ripcord uh, 2 looked at was a, a riff of the original Ripcord study, which used pressure wire assessment to, to see if it altered decision making. What they did was they, they, were, they measured fractional flow reserve in every single uh, vessel that had a, a narrowing of more than 30%. And then they looked to see if there was a difference in um, decision making amongst physicians caring for the patient and a difference in cost and a difference in quality of life. And this was done at the diagnostic angiography stage. So this is quite different from how many centers use FFR. This was done uh, at the diagnostic stage. And this is how we actually at Imperial use uh, fractional flow reserve. We will measure it at, during a, a routine diagnostic cath. Every patient will be consented for the use of physiology and imaging for us to truly understand what the coronary disease is and to decide whether it's appropriate. Um, this is in the stable cohort, of course, uh, whether it's appropriate for them to come back for revascularization in another setting, yeah, um, depending on, on how they've been booked. And so. Um, this is perhaps a slightly different use of physiology, how many other people use it. So remember, much of the use of physiology is in the context of we've decided to place some stent. We're looking at multi-vessel disease. We think that we need to do the LAD, but we're also going to assess the circumflex in the right coronary artery. So slightly different use. And in this around a thousand patients, so it's 1,100 patients, um, that, that means it's relatively small, perhaps not quite powered, for uh, hard outcomes in this study showed that actually there was no significant difference in the uh, quality of life of patients. And there was no significant difference in the cost in the management of these patients. What's interesting that is that by uh, using FFR in this diagnostic way, Patients who were randomized in that cohort of patients had a lot less tests, so they didn't have that thing that sometimes happens in the UK, which I've always thought was a little bit crazy. So you come for a, a, an angiogram which I think of as a end goal after multiple other tests. But in lots of hospitals and lots of centers, people do an angiogram and go, "Oh well, there's a, a narrowing there, and I don't quite know what to do, so now I'm going to send them for an MRI, stress perfusion MRI, or now I'm going to send them for a stress echo." And I kind of think that's backwards. And sure enough, in this study, they showed that if you do an FFR up front, you reduce the total number of tests done. But interestingly, because of the cost of the pressure wire and the adenosine uh, and perhaps the additional cost of guiding catheters and along those lines, overall it was cost neutral. Now what's remarkable is that actually they're able to manage these patients. These are all patients who are being referred through what's known as a rapid access chest pain clinic, which is UK listeners will be very familiar with. Uh, They're able to manage all of these patients on average for a cost of four and a half thousand pounds. Now, I don't know what our U.S. listeners think about that, but that's an incredibly low cost of money, low sum of money to be able to manage patients who are undergoing invasive procedures, pressure wire and all these kind of things. So, you know, just to tantalize our American cousins here to think that we can do things at such low cost here in the UK uh, and still at high volume. Uh, But what was interesting is that it didn't really make any difference. So. uh, so there are some limitations to this study. I think it's a, a nice idea and I think the concept was a good idea, uh, but it led to this kind of concept. Uh, I saw this in the press, people saying, oh, well, this basically tells us that fractional flow reserve is negative in flower. It's negative in ripcord two. Uh, therefore, what value is it? And I'd say that perhaps this was using the technology a bit beyond in the way it was meant to be used. And perhaps if you're assessing a lot of very mild lesions, it probably doesn't add anything in that cohort of patients. So, um, I thought that was interesting. I think it's worth mentioning that because it kind of led to the overall negativity. And then I'll just move on to the kind of the big negative one that came out recently, which has kind of been perceived as a, as a very negative study, um, which is the FAME 3 study that's literally just been uh, presented by Bill Fearon. It's been published now in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is a very courageous, if I can use that word, study. And uh, perhaps continues to show the hubris of interventional cardiologists that we still think we can take on uh, coronary artery bypass surgery uh, cabbage. And what they looked at was patients with multivessel disease, excluding left main, and they uh, were randomized to uh, an FFR-guided PCI approach, or bypass mostly driven by angiographic appearance. So uh, FFR was not necessarily mandatory in that arm, although it was encouraged. Actually, the total number of patients who had FFR in that arm was actually relatively small. Um, and what they showed in this in this cohort in, in the one year data that's now being published is that there was no significant um, advantage to PCI. And they, it was a non-inferiority study and they were unable to meet uh, the, defin- the pre-specified definition of non-inferiority. So they've got the slightly farcical wording of that. This was not non-inferior. Um, so double negative, which some people would say, well, means that surgery is superior. I'd say that actually the study is not powered for that. And there are some limitations. Um, There is a slightly higher death rate in the MI group, in the PCI group, which is slightly unusual. Um, But there is a higher stroke rate in the surgical group, as, as we often know. And in at one year, there is a slightly higher revask rate in the uh, PCI. And we know that we know that if we perform PCI, we tend to pay, follow these patients a lot more closely. We tend to bring patients back when patients uh, have ongoing symptoms or uh, have concerning um, issues. And certainly in mainland Europe, there is unfortunately this tendency to do uh, top up angioplasty. And I've seen um, Antonio Colombo talk about this Um, This is a problem when we were running syntax Two. that centers would like to say, oh, we've just done a recath just to check if everything's all right. And I'm just going to give this stent an extra balloon. I don't quite understand what people think they're doing there. But, you know, that would count as a a, a revascularization. So some issues there uh, that cause limitation in the interpretation of the study. But I think ultimately um, what it boils down to is that perhaps we're kind of really. At the edges of what we can do at the moment with multi-vessel pci and we're at the edges of what we can do if we don't necessarily do it properly and i know there's been a lot of criticism on social media about the very low imaging rates and certainly we touched on imaging a little bit earlier and um over over the years my imaging rate in intervention just standard intervention straightforward lesions is is now reaching to sort of 80 90 percent because the more imaging you do the more you realize that you're just not getting it right you're not getting the stent sizing right you're not getting the expansion that you think you're getting you're not getting the apposition that you think you're getting on the angiogram. so i would encourage um, everyone to to use imaging where possible when you're guiding your intervention i think it makes you a better interventionist i don't think that if they had used uh ivis to high levels in this study that it would suddenly match surgery i think it's an unfair comparator you're basically Asking for a lot, you're basically asking for focal stenting to um, to match uh, a a vein graft or a, a lemur which is basically covering all the uh, vascular territory. And I think also, I think we should probably stop doing that comparison because they are very very different approaches to revascularization. And I think you and I will both have seen patients that have had bypass grafts have had chest pain after. And this certainly happens in the UK. They get they have chest pain. Um, They're uh, seen by their primary care physician or they're seen in an emergency department and they go and the the physician looking after them will say, well, you've had bypass. So that's fine. And they're not investigated any further. And I don't know if you come across that. So my experience is actually if you systematically perform CTCA in patients who've had recent bypass, the occlusion rate of a graft is actually pretty, pretty high. Uh, The German data suggests it's around 30 percent at six months. And certainly in my real world experience, I, I would say the same. It's around 30%. So actually, if we kind of looked into the bypass patients in the same way as we tend to follow our PCI patients, I think we would actually find that bypass hides a multitude of sins. Now, this isn't a criticism. This isn't a criticism of, of surgeons and, and their operations. I think this is a limitation of you know the treatment, the technology. Just as there are limitations to stents, there will be limitations to, to bypass. The lemur tends to stay unfortunately veins tend to fail particularly uh, if you've got complex disease and and the distal target isn't great so i mean I, I the reason i wanted to cover this is because this was it kind of completed the trifecta of negative ffr studies this year and i can certainly see how a lot of people will be saying you know what I, it takes a lot of time i don't think it helps uh these studies are negative i'm just not going to do it anymore and i just wanted to highlight that there are limitations of these studies uh and um just in the same way as there are probably lack of power in, in flower, I suspect there's some limitation of power in Fame 3. The event rate is not that high. I, th- I think they powered it for a slightly higher event rate. Um, and so I think there are some constraints there. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on this uh, topic are, um, um, Ankur.
1: So I, I agree with you, Suk. I think um, as years have gone by and, um, you know, as more studies have been published and, you know, obviously we um, have these conversations on social media about how low, particularly in FAME 3, how low the imaging used was. I think, uh, you know, lack of routine imaging, intracoronary imaging in the setting of PCI in 2022, in my opinion, is suboptimal care. And I, I agree with you. It, it um, amazes you um, as to how uh, deceptive Uh, just angiographic appearance of a well-expanded stent can be. Uh, And it sort of opens your eyes as to, you know, how much more you can expand and oppose the stent, uh, particularly with, you know, intracoronary imaging. So I would encourage uh, anyone and everyone who is an interventionalist, who does PCI, uh, you know, as as part of the clinical spectrum of duties and responsibilities to, to to strongly consider intracoronary imaging, um, as, as, you know, part of your armamentarium for just routine PCI, I think it's, it's crucial for, uh, you know, optimal stent results, you know, for your patients. Uh, and, you know, we have accruing data on how well these patients do if, if, you know, if stents are well opposed and, and well expanded. So I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think, uh, with, with FFR, I, you know, with, even with the publication of all of these studies, I I'm not certain if it changes my practice, quite frankly. I mean, I I was using it in uh, assessment of lesions in patients with stable disease, and I think that's how I'm going to continue to use it. Um, And, you know, I think based on some of these measurements, we do decide, uh, you know, because, you know, more often than not, you'll see patients with multivessel disease, there is a tight CERC lesion, which is mid to distal, there is a tight RCA lesion, and then you have this LAD, which you're not certain, you're not certain, you know, it's diffusely diseased. You're not certain if it's significant or not significant. You end up doing physiological assessment, turns out to be significant. You know, we we do th- do send these patients to surgery. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I it's a, I mean, great discussion and, you know, some incredible points that you've raised and made. Um, and I, I do think uh, both these technologies, you know, whether it's intracoronary imaging or whether it's uh, physiological assessment of coronary stenosis are here to stay. I think you just have to be mindful in picking these technologies for the right patient, you know, as you mentioned.
0: Yeah, I think that that they are all tools that are there to assist our decision making. They aren't. Uh, we should never. Uh, and this is something that we've taught for a long time on our, the physiology course in London. Um, when people come uh, to visit us and and see how we think of it we don't think of physiology as a hard go no go yes no revascularization decision these are continuous variables there is nothing that is uh, has a hard straight line in biology and in in the human body and in medicine and therefore you know if you've got a patient who's got classical symptoms who's got um, ischemia testing that's been done and that demonstrates that they've got ischemia you've you've Done an angiogram, they've got a stenosis. Sometimes we perform an FFR and it's negative, we perform an IFR and it's negative. And then sometimes people say, oh, well, I'm just not doing it. Well, I would say that actually you've got multiple components of the story that suggest that there is ischemia. And if your value is, say, with an FFR of 0.81 or an IFR of 0.90, so just above the threshold, then actually you, um, you're in that zone where you could, on balance of probabilities, offer revascularization for the patient. Now, I'm not saying that in every case. But that's if you have that kind of combination of everything pushing you in that direction. And of course, you have also have situations where, um, for example, you may have a patient that's got very atypical symptoms, doesn't sound like they're having angina. You've been pushed into performing an angiogram. Perhaps the patient's come on the table because uh, someone else has driven the patient down to the lab. And you don't, um, you know, the information that you've got before the cath lab uh, doesn't imply that ischemia is a driver of the patient's symptomatology, and you don't think they're major in jeopardy. You do an angiogram, and sometimes there's very little disease. You move to show the patient doesn't have ischemia. You do an FFR, and sometimes it's strongly positive. And then that can surprise you, and that can suddenly make you pull out the imaging catheter. You in- as- assess it more detail, and suddenly you understand that actually what you thought was trivial is actually quite significant. And that may alter your treatment. Alternatively, you may say, look, I understand that there is this value is positive, but I still don't think it's uh, immediately needs re- revascularization. And in the stable cohort, you have the time to wait, get the patient on optimal medical therapy, see them back in clinic. And whilst people kind of look at FAME2 and say, look, uh, all these patients needed to have revascularization because there was a particular five years, this this big separation in the curves. I also say, well, just look at the other aspect of it, because remember in the the arm that had medical therapy with a positive fractional flow reserve in fame two in the, in the uh, one year and two year outcomes, 75% of patients in that arm had no events. That means, you know, know, majority of your patients will be absolutely fine to wait. And it gives you time to give them medical therapy and gives them time for you to escalate uh, the treatment. And that's something that we learn all the time. I think we're learning to take our foot off the pedal a little bit with the stable patients and just be a little bit more relaxed in our approach. them. And I think the physiology helps it. You know, if it's negative, it gives you a great deal of breathing space. If it's positive, it helps alter your, uh, the conversation that you have with patients. It helps alter your conversation you have with colleagues. Just like you have mentioned just now, our surgeons will demand that we've done physiology in our patients. They, they will turn away patients who referred for surgery if we haven't proven uh, to the surgeon that there is uh, ischemia there with a pressure wire. And that, that they, that that's because they've learned from us. And they push us to make sure we do it. So sometimes we'll do an angiogram and go, oh, that's a no-brainer, definite for surgery. And they'll turn around and go, hang on, you haven't done a fractional flow so you haven't measured an IFR. Um, You know, we're a big IFR lab, obviously, as being the originators of the technology. So they just expect that from us.
1: Yeah, well, great, great discussion, Suk. Um, And I know it's getting late in the UK and we're a little over time for this segment, so... Probably going, to have you, probably going to have you back um, for, for part two for the 2021 finale where we are going to cover, you know, heart failure and, and surgical trials. And, um, you know, always terrific to have you, um, you know, on board because we have these discussions which are both evidence-based as well as, you know, bedside. You know, what do you do at the bedside? So thank you for, you know, your in-depth knowledge and, and expertise and we really value your contribution.
0: All right. It's an absolute pleasure to join you again, Uncle. And thank you very much for the kind invitation. I hope the listeners have found it useful.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're going to see you back shortly.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.